Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. On December 14, 1964, the Supreme Court handed down a pair of decisions upholding Title II of the Civil Rights Act. One of those decisions was Heart of Atlanta Motel versus United States. It's the case we talked about last episode. The other was Katzenbach versus McClung. It was about a family-owned restaurant in Birmingham, Alabama called Ollie's Barbecue. The restaurant's owner, Ollie McClung, operated a racially segregated establishment. And one of the reasons for the Civil Rights Act was to prevent such things from happening. At Ollie's Barbecue, white customers could dine in the restaurant, but black customers could only order carryout. The restaurant had been operating under the radar screen of the authority since the Civil Rights Act was passed. Nobody had ever threatened any legal action against them, but McClung initiated this lawsuit against Lyndon Johnson's attorney general, Nick Katzenbach, arguing against the enforcement of the Civil Rights Act at his restaurant. His main argument was that Title II of the Civil Rights Act was unconstitutional. That section prohibits racial discrimination in restaurants and motels and other public accommodations who serve interstate travelers or who sell products that have moved in interstate commerce. And this is done under Congress's enumerated power to regulate commerce among the several states. Unlike the Heart of Atlanta Motel, though, Ollie's Barbecue said they didn't serve any interstate travelers. At least as far as they knew, their customers were all local. They even bought their meat from local suppliers. But one of those suppliers where Ollie's Barbecue got about half of its meat, it turns out, got its supplies from out of state. Was that enough to extend Congress's regulatory power to Ollie's Barbecue? Looking at it from a different angle, what if Ollie's just got a new local supplier, refused to serve any meat that had traveled in interstate commerce and didn't have any interstate customers? Or what if it just got, say, 10% rather than the reported 46% of its meat from out of state? Would that make it immune from regulation under the Commerce Clause? Would that mean the Civil Rights Act doesn't apply to them? In a unanimous opinion in the Ollie's Barbecue case, just like that of Heart of Atlanta Motel, the Supreme Court upheld the application of Title II of the Civil Rights Act to this local business because of the effect the business had on interstate commerce. But listen here to the final closing argument of Solicitor General Archibald Cox in this case. If I might say just uh, one final and general word here. Uh, A good deal has been said uh, about if Congress can do this, then it can do that. Uh, If Congress can do that, then it can go still farther. Uh, And this may swallow up uh, the distinction between the nation and the states. Uh, Of course, what has to be drawn here is a practical line, and a line which the cases make clear uh, is for Congress uh, to draw. And the only question here, the burden isn't on us to prove the relationship between these practices and interstate commerce, Uh, even if we hadn't said, hadn't a word of evidence of that kind, as Mr. Justice Black has suggested. Uh, Still, unless the court could conclude that there was no rational relationship that the Congress could find, uh, then the congressional judgment would be conclusive. And we simply go forward uh, to show Uh, that there was plenty of evidence of things that the congressmen uh, could take into account in addition to what they knew of their own knowledge, not to the exclusion of it. This wasn't a matter of a record. The things that congressmen knew out of their own experience were relevant for them to uh, take into account here. 
where there is that rational basis, uh, then, as is so often the case, uh, of course, uh, the place to which uh, the people must look uh, to draw the line, uh, to preserve a difference between what is local and what is national, uh, is to the wisdom and discretion of the Congress. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice Marshall pointed this out in the Gibbons and Ogden, and referring to the congressman, uh, said that they are the restraints on which the people must often rely solely, uh, as in all representative governments. Taken together with Wickard versus Filburn, we're left after the cases involving the constitutionality of Title II of the Civil Rights Act with a vision of the Commerce Clause that goes something like this. The power to regulate interstate commerce is a power to promote and create a national economy. We want the national economy to be free of local obstructions and barriers to commerce. Congress has the power to regulate interstate commerce and to do what is necessary and proper to regulate interstate commerce. And commerce here doesn't just mean the buying and selling of goods, but it entails navigation and travel and the various dealings of people across state borders throughout the country. If Congress, through the legislative process, decides to regulate the interstate market by establishing a quota for the amount of wheat each farmer may grow, then the Supreme Court will defer to Congress's policy judgment, as it did in Wickard v. Filburn. In that case, the court said that one farmer's decision to grow in excess of the wheat quota may have a trivial effect on commerce by itself, but every farmer's decision to do the same thing would not. And in the same way, one restaurant's decision to discriminate based on race might have a small effect on interstate commerce by itself. But if every little establishment did the same, the aggregate effect would be pretty serious. Whether to regulate those local businesses or local activities because of their aggregate effect on commerce is itself a legislative judgment that has to be made by Congress. It's not the court's job to second-guess the legislature. It's a policy question, not a legal question. Now, that vision of the Commerce Clause and of Congress's authority under the Commerce Clause is not really challenged until the Rehnquist Revolution of the 1990s. In episode 18, we talked about the federalism dimension of that revolution under the Rehnquist Court, how the Supreme Court imposed limits on federal regulatory power with a particular interpretation of the Tenth Amendment and a particular vision of state sovereignty. Alongside those federalism cases were others, limiting the reach of federal regulatory power under a particular interpretation of the Commerce Clause. The three main cases here from the Rehnquist era are United States versus Lopez in 1995 about the Gun-Free School Zones Act, United States versus Morrison in 2000 about the Violence Against Women Act, and Gonzalez versus Raich in 2005 about the Controlled Substances Act. Let's start with Alfonso Lopez, a senior in high school who brought a gun to school. By bringing a gun into a school zone, he violated the Gun-Free School Zones Act of 1990. That act made it a federal offense for, quote, any individual knowingly to possess a firearm at a place that the individual knows or has reasonable cause to believe is a school zone. Lopez argued that Congress had no authority to regulate guns in school zones. It's a local issue. If that state or city wants to ban guns in school zones, that's fine. But Congress has no enumerated power that would allow it to just categorically ban possession of a certain item close to a school. In response, the government said, no, we have the authority and we have it under the Commerce Clause. The argument they made is that possession of firearms in school zones affects interstate commerce. Not each individual incident so much, but the presence of guns in school zones in the aggregate. And for two reasons. First, it adds to educational expenses by raising insurance costs. And second, it limits the ability or willingness of people to travel to unsafe areas or neighborhoods. 
And the cumulative effect of all of this is that it diminishes educational outcomes necessary for a strong national economy. The Rehnquist court in this case looked askance at this argument, and the court's five conservatives, Rehnquist, O'Connor, Kennedy, Scalia, and Thomas, struck down the statute. Here's how Rehnquist explained the court's reasoning. The Constitution creates a federal government of enumerated powers and delegates to Congress the power to regulate commerce among the several states. The Gun-Free School Zones Act, however, goes further. It neither regulates a commercial activity nor contains a requirement that the possession of the firearm be connected in any way to interstate commerce. To uphold the act, we would have to pile inference upon inference in a manner that would bid fair to convert congressional authority under the Commerce Clause to a general police power of the sort retained by the states. To do so would require us to obliterate the distinction between what is truly national and what is truly local. This is something we're unwilling to do. We hold that Congress, in enacting the Gun-Free School Zones Act, exceeded its authority under the Commerce Clause. As Rehnquist wrote in the majority opinion, since the New Deal, the court has, quote, identified three broad categories of activity that Congress may regulate under its commerce power. First, Congress may regulate the use of the channels of interstate commerce, where things flow from state to state, rivers, roads, or whatever it would be. Second, Congress is empowered to regulate and protect the instrumentalities of interstate commerce, or persons or things in interstate commerce, the things that are actually moving in commerce. Finally, Congress's commerce authority includes the power to regulate those activities having a substantial relation to interstate commerce. But this act, Rehnquist goes on to say, is not, quote, a regulation of the use of the channels of interstate commerce, nor is it an attempt to prohibit the interstate transportation of a commodity through the channels of commerce, nor can it be justified as a regulation of an activity that substantially affects interstate commerce. And there's a slippery slope that the court is worried about here. If this is sustained, Rehnquist says, then, quote, Congress could regulate not only all violent crime, but all activities that might lead to violent crime, regardless of how tenuously they relate to interstate commerce. And Congress could regulate any activity that it found was related to the economic productivity of individual citizens. And upon this reasoning, he says, it's difficult to perceive any limitation on federal power, even in areas such as criminal law enforcement or education, where states have historically been sovereign. The court is trying here, like it did with its federalism decisions in this same era, to mark off some sphere in which states remain sovereign and authoritative, and to do this by limiting Congress's regulatory reach. And so the court declares the Gun-Free School Zones Act unconstitutional. What Congress then does next is to very slightly revise the act in light of the court's analysis. The first version of the act said this, quote, it shall be unlawful for any individual knowingly to possess a firearm at a place that the individual knows or has reasonable cause to believe is a school zone. The revised statute now says this, it shall be unlawful for any individual knowingly to possess a firearm that has moved in or otherwise affects interstate or foreign commerce at a place the individual knows or has reasonable cause to believe is a school zone. Is there a difference? Probably not in terms of the actual application of the statute. Unless you're making a handgun with a 3D printer disconnected from the internet, it's hard to see how any firearm would not have moved in or otherwise affect commerce. The practical reach of the statute remains the same. You can't bring guns in school zones. But there were certain principles put down by the Supreme Court in this case that had relevance that traveled far beyond that particular congressional act. 
One of those principles the court seems to point to is that violent crime is traditionally a matter of state and local law, that there's no general power of Congress to enact a criminal code across the nation. And this precise question becomes the constitutional issue with the 1994 Violence Against Women Act, an act that was originally co-sponsored by Orrin Hatch and Joe Biden. The act said that, quote, all persons within the United States shall have the right to be free from crimes of violence motivated by gender. And it allowed victims of gender-motivated violence to sue for damages against violators of the statute. Congress argued that violence against women posed a deterrent to interstate travel and that it affected interstate commerce in all sorts of negative ways. But Rehnquist thought the precedent in Lopez was decisive here, that Congress just didn't have any authority in this area. As Rehnquist wrote for the same five-member majority as Lopez, quote, gender-motivated crimes of violence are not, in any sense of the phrase, economic activity. And while we need not adopt a categorical rule against aggregating the effects of any non-economic activity in order to decide these cases, thus far in our nation's history, our cases have upheld Commerce Clause regulation of intrastate activity only where that activity is economic in nature. And here, as with the Gun-Free School Zones Act, Congress repassed the statute with the Supreme Court's ruling in mind. After Morrison v. United States, the Violence Against Women Act was reconfigured as a program of federal grants to the states. That program grew over time to include a variety of grants structured around gender-motivated violence. That congressional debate over its renewal broke down, though, in recent years in debates about same-sex couples, transgender violence, gun rights, and a host of other culture war issues. And so it wasn't renewed when it last expired in February of 2019. Now, a final case for us to consider, Gonzalez v. Raich in 2005. This case is, in a lot of ways, just like Wickard v. Filburn. It's about growing a specific crop on your own property, using it for home consumption, never selling it or entering into interstate commerce. But that crop, in this case, is cannabis rather than wheat. And Congress is not setting a quota but banning cultivation altogether. Under the Controlled Substances Act of 1970, it's a federal crime to grow or possess cannabis. California state law, though, at this time allowed use for medical purposes. And Angel Raish's doctor encouraged her to use marijuana to help alleviate chronic pain associated with an inoperable brain tumor. The marijuana she used is homegrown. It hadn't moved in interstate commerce, and she didn't buy it or sell it. A separate defendant in the same case, Diane Monson, had six of her plants destroyed by the Drug Enforcement Administration, a federal law enforcement agency. The question of the case is whether Congress, and the federal government generally, has the authority to make it a crime to possess and use cannabis, and what relevance, if any, comes from the fact that this is a chronically ill patient in California who's growing and using marijuana consistent with state law. Unlike the Gun-Free School Zones Act and the Violence Against Women Act, the court upheld the application of the Controlled Substances Act in this case. What changed? Well, in some ways, Justices Scalia and Kennedy are what changed. Scalia and Kennedy sided here with Justices Stevens, Souter, Ginsburg, and Breyer to uphold the statute. As they saw things, well-settled law provided the answer in this case. Congress has the power to regulate interstate markets for drugs and medicinal substances, and this includes things that are part of that market that are produced locally. And for this, the court relied on Wickard versus Filburn. The similarities between this case and Wickard are striking, the court's majority opinion stated. Like the farmer in Wickard, the court goes on, respondents are cultivating for home consumption a fungible commodity for which there is an established, albeit illegal, interstate market. And that precedent in Wickard versus Filburn proved decisive in this case. 
The attorney who argued the case for race was Randy Barnett, a prominent law professor at Georgetown University. Barnett was not satisfied with the court's reasoning about the Commerce Clause, and he was, not coincidentally, one of the attorneys who represented the National Federation of Independent Businesses when they brought a case against the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Kathleen Sebelius, arguing that the individual mandate of the Affordable Care Act was unsustainable under the Commerce Clause. And so we'll take a look next at the 2012 case about the Affordable Care Act and the ongoing debate surrounding the individual mandate and the Commerce Clause. 